Well, this morning we come to Psalm 102, and as we've been making our way through this fourth book, we commented earlier on that there was a repetition in the Psalms. I mean, many of these Psalms rejoicing in and celebrating the fact that the Lord reigns and these calls to worship and, and again, sort of these mountaintop Psalms. We confessed also that it's good even in the repetition. The Lord obviously thinks we need it. Um, you think about the things that we do weekly as we come before the Lord in worship, whether it's the singing of the doxology or the Gloria Patri or confessing our sins, as we've said. It's, it's not just the elders of the church who think we need repetition. It's taken and drawn from the Lord because you get that kind of repetition in the scriptures in which not vain repetition, but repetition, right? We need to have things worked into our souls and kneaded down into our souls, so you have that in the early parts of book four. And then, as we looked at last week, there was a change in, in tone, a different kind of psalm, it felt like, in Psalm 101, this royal psalm, the psalm of David, but a psalm of, of law, a psalm of, of judgment. It was looking over the kingdom and a determination on how David was going to rule, not only himself personally, but also the entire kingdom. It was a very strong law-oriented, a high standard for the kingdom, going to draw the, the kingdom to the Lord and push out the evildoers. We will have nothing to do with them, certainly not in David's counsel. But even within the kingdom, David was going to be intentional about, about cultivating within the kingdom of God a desire for and even a character, uh, a character um, characterization, I guess, of holiness. He was going to build it in and work it into the kingdom. And we thought about this. We thought about this last week in terms of this word coming to the church as, as we, we see in Israel perhaps even a, a, a uh, shadow of the church that is to come. And David's concern was not so much for the nations as much as it was the church needs to be holy. And I need to be holy. And that was David's focus in Psalm 101. In Psalm 102, again, a different kind of psalm. It's not one of these mountaintop uh, psalms. In fact, it feels like a valley psalm, as you heard me read it for our Old Testament reading, and even as we got to sing part of it in, in our psalm of preparation today. It feels like a valley psalm. It, it actually feels like we're in a, we're, we are with the psalmist in a dark uh, place, a place of real despair. Uh, in, in fact, I mean, it's, kind of guttural. I mean, the way that the, the psalmist goes on describing his own condition, you know, he can't, he, he's forgetting to eat. He, he, his groaning is keeping him from eating bread. He's, he's in fact eating dust and he's just pouring the dust and ashes on himself in sorrow and lament to such a point that that's his food. He's, he's trying to drink, but his, his drink is being mingled with salty tears. Um, he's a mess. He's a mess. So again, we go from these mountaintop psalms to, okay, David looking at his kingdom and he's going to establish order and holiness and then down into the valley here of we've got real trouble in the, in the kingdom. Um, and we, we admitted last week, we acknowledged that in Psalm 101 actually, that while David had these high aspirational visions of what he was going to do in his own personal life and what he was going to do for his kingdom, actually the kingdom of Israel looked nothing like that. It looked, it looked nothing like Psalm 101. It's very aspirational. It's very moving. But when we study the scriptures and we look at what the history of Israel and the kingdom and then the kingdoms 
of Israel look like? Boy, they look rough. A lot of idolatry. I mean, you get to you get to the time of of Elijah, and Elijah's having like his big showdown with the prophets of Baal, and and you just you're you're just reading that story, and it feels like Elijah is confronting the other nations and their gods and their false prophets, and then and then you have to slap yourself and remind yourself he's actually in Israel doing this. He's in Israel confronting the king of Israel and the prophets of Baal who are his people and who are, who are defending the fact that Baal is the true God. I mean, that's, you've gotten pretty low there when you've got these, the, his people and they have to have this big showdown on Mount Carmel over who the true God is. You've really slid a long way. I, I think Psalm 101 has not really clicked in. It has not it has not worked itself out in the history of Israel. Now that comes with consequences. And the prophets of Israel were coming in waves to the kings of Israel, telling them to repent, telling them to flee from their idolatry and warning them that if they do not, though the Lord is slow to anger, his judgment will fall. And eventually his judgment did fall. And Israel was cast out of the land into exile and her beloved city, Jerusalem, was destroyed and her beloved temple, which the temple is like the, the center of the center. I mean, Jerusalem is the center of the, the life of the Hebrews, but the center of the center was the temple. The temple is what made Jerusalem the center. The temple is what, what made Israel Israel. It was everything. It was God dwelling in their midst. And now it's Ichabod. The glory departed. The temple lying in ruins, dust and ashes. And we find our psalmist now on the other side of that. We find a psalmist who's out in exile. A psalmist who is driven from his land and who looks back upon his beloved city, upon that place which was gift from God, that temple which represents communion with God and fellowship with him, and was their whole identity. Again, they're just another nation if it's not that they have union with Jehovah. And a weak nation at that. But they've got Jehovah. They are the light of the world. They, they have relationship with the one true God. And now that temple lies in ruins. And the psalmist is feeling it. Literally in his bones. He says, my, my bones are burning like a, like a hearth. Like I'm fire. My, my skin is clinging to me. I, 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 I'm weeping and I can't eat and drink. I'm, I'm a mess. Now, perhaps there is personal, you can read this psalm, you can read this psalm as a, as just, and relate it to yourself in terms of personal affliction. You know, you're going through the ringer yourself, and you're going through some, and we all have, and we share on a weekly basis our, our issues and struggles. Of course, there's a whole host of ones that we don't share. Not only that, but we're bearing burdens of friends and loved ones who we don't share. We don't, we don't have time to share everything here. Well, my goodness gracious, we know of people who are suffering. We have friends and family who are suffering. We're suffering in ways. I mean, 
in some ways we can relate to Psalm 102 on that level, a time of real suffering and affliction. And that would be fair, and it would be appropriate to read this in some ways uh, in that situation. But that's not quite what he's dealing with here. He is literally grieving the exile that he and his people have from the temple. He's looking back on the temple and it's it's dust and his ashes. He says, we, we love those stones. We love that dust. We desperately want it to be restored. That's the, that's the angst that the psalmist is feeling here. And so it's it's not inappropriate to read this in our personal afflictions. And yet, and yet, this is another opportunity, and I was challenged by this myself this week in thinking of this psalm. Another little chance for us to question our own prayer life. What does it mean to pray in exile? And I say to pray in exile because we can place ourselves in the context of Psalm 102 here beyond just, oh, when we're going through personal affliction. Okay, yes, but the broader image of Psalm 102 is the psalmist is stripped from his home. And the temple, which he loves so much, lies in ruins. Can we relate to that at all? Now, now Peter, in 1 Peter 2, will call us, and, and, and even and in 1 Peter 1 as well, he calls us these sojourners. He calls us pilgrims, aliens. Peter has no problem drawing on this imagery of exiles, aliens, sojourners, to his own church at the time, and through them, I think, also to us. Do you feel like an alien? Do you feel like an exile? In the image of the Bible, we are all living in Babylon. We're all living in Babylon. We look back, we look back at Zion, and we know we're all living in exile. This is not home. Not only on some broad sense that we're all going to die and go to heaven, but again, the state of things is not home. This is not the way it's intended to be. This is Babylon. We live among a city of idolaters. And yet it feels like home. I mean, let's admit it. We settle in pretty nicely. Do you feel like you're living in exile? And if you if you are living in exile, what does it mean to pray there? Are, I get the challenge I want to give as the psalmist here is grieving and he's saying my 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 skin is stuck to my bones. I, I can't even eat. I, I can't even think of. Yes, he's suffering reproach. He's having to live among a, a group of enemies who are mocking him, who are putting him down, and so forth. But what he's yearning for in this psalm is the temple. He's yearning for home. Now, if you and I examine our prayer life, because because the psalmist here jumps right to it, he begins by asking the Lord to hear his prayer. He does the right thing, right? He's got all this grief and all this sorrow and all this affliction, and he he turns to the Lord with it, and he just gives it to the Lord very honestly. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me in the day that I call. Answer me speedily, for my days are consumed like smoke. 
My bones are burned like the hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass so that I forget to eat my bread because of the sound of my groaning. My bones cling to my skin. I'm, I'm in solitude. I'm like a pelican in the wilderness. I, I didn't know there are pelicans in the wilderness. But there's just a solitary bird. You know, he's a solitary bird out in a solitary place. I'm like an owl of the desert. I lie awake. You, I'm sure have felt that and in the midst of sorrow. You just can't sleep. I'm like a sparrow alone on the house housetop. Like, no, I just can't relate to anybody. I feel alone. I'm broken. My enemies reproach me all day long. So not only do I have all this grief and all this pain, not only do I feel this solitude, but I got people throwing rocks at me. You know, I'm, I'm dealing with enemies who are deriding me and are reproaching me. They deride me. They swear an oath against me. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. This guy, he's in a rough spot. And he's in a rough spot because he looks back to Jerusalem and there lies his beloved city and his beloved temple in ashes. Now, the challenge I, the, the question I have for you in your prayer life, just a chance to hold up your prayer life and look at it, is one, do you pray? Okay, because here the psalmist and the book of Psalms, which is a book of prayers, are intended to give you things to pray. They're intended to give you kind of rails on which the, the train cars of your prayers can go. Like, here's ways to pray. So one, do you pray? Are you taking your petitions, your concerns to the Lord, asking him to hear you? But number two, what do you pray about? What, what dominates your prayers? Now, there are personal things in the Psalms, make no mistake about it. Oftentimes, they are praying about the afflictions, and even here, right, he's dealing with specific afflictions he's facing. I've got enemies around me. I feel lonely. I feel all these personal things. But the essence of his prayer is about the temple. It's about the temple. It's, it's about the, the dust and ashes of the temple that he loves so much and the restoration of the temple and the fact that the Lord, and we'll get there in a second, but you, O oh Lord, the Lord is going to restore the temple. He's, it's going to be such a display of restoration that the nations are going to be in awe, that the nations are not going to be able to stop talking about it, that the kings of the earth are actually going to come and bring their glory to God. That's going to be the only thing that's sustaining our psalmist. And his yearning and his brokenness is over the brokenness of the temple. Now, in our prayers, where do kingdom prayers fall? In the pie chart of your prayers. Like in, if you just took your prayer life and, and, and put it as a pie chart, how much attention is given to the rebuilding, if you will, of the temple? And in this case, when I say rebuilding of the temple, I'm thinking 1 Peter 2, rebuilding of the temple. Okay, That you and I are living stones being built into a holy house. How much attention is given to the building of the church of God, to the building of the kingdom of God? How much lament is there in our prayers over the ruins of the church? Calvin, in his commentary on, on Psalm 102, basically spends time saying, yes, this is our church. This is the church of our day. He basically says, in many ways, though there's many things to be happy about and many good things are happening, 
at the same time, the church lays in ruins. And any member of the church who is not grieved by it is not worthy of membership within it, he says, as Calvin is prone to strong language. Are we grieved by the state of the American church? I, I know we whine to each other about it. We grumble to each other about it. We're pretty good at that. If we do that, if it's even on our radar, I mean, generally what's on our radar is more so the American culture. The, the political situation, the economic situation, right? The, the, the medical situation, the, the, the military, the foreign policy situation. These things we are, we are high on our list. We're very, we know the details of this. We've been reading up on it. We've watched enough news on it. We know the stories and it ticks us off one way or the other, and we are ready to have good discussions about this. And maybe, maybe if we're very spiritual, we pray about the state of our country because we would like it to go back to a state or, or go to a state that will be blessed. You know, That's very natural to us. It's very natural to us to pray for our own health, our own job, our own relationships, our own friendships. It's very natural for us to pray for one another and bear their burdens. And these are all wonderful things. I'm not discounting any of those things. But how much prayer, how much attention in our prayer is given to the building of the kingdom of God? How much prayer or lament or praise or thanksgiving or intercession is offered for the building of that temple, the temple of God's church? The psalmist is broken, not because, oh, it stinks to live in Babylon, because of its culture, it stinks to live in Babylon because it's not Jerusalem. It stinks to live in Babylon because we don't have the temple here. The temple is there and we need to be back there. Oh, how we long for the day of its restoration. And if you're like me, my prayers are dominated with these other things. Very few kingdom prayers. Very few eschatological prayers. Very few Maranatha prayers. Very few Psalm 102 prayers. While the psalmist is living in exile and he's crying out to the Lord for his coming, for the day in which he will restore all things. And he lays out in his prayers, and here I do believe is a model for personal prayer, whether it's for the kingdom or whether it's for our own afflictions, and that is a very heartfelt, honest description of our situation to the Lord. The psalmist does not just assume, well, Lord, I don't have to tell you all these things because you already know it. He honestly sort of diagnoses himself before the Lord in this amazing list uh, and description of his own situation. My life is fading. I'm in terrible pain. I'm battling tremendous loneliness. I am reproached and derided by, by people all around me, and I am in unbelievable grief and mourning. The psalmist just lists these things out. And then, as we move down the psalm, and I stopped in my list of reading, I stopped in verse 9, because in verse 10, he even takes it to another level. And here's where, in some sense, we can relate this to Psalm 101 and the failings of Psalm 101, right? The failings of the precepts and the promises of Psalm 101 that David made. In verse 10, he actually attributes his situation to the Lord. Um, in, in verse 10, 
the psalmist actually turns us and acknowledges that ultimately this is of the Lord. So, for I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping because of your indignation. Because of your wrath. For you have lifted me up and cast me away. <laughs> the psalmist acknowledges that I'm here because, Lord, you sent us away. Now, if you, if you press him, he, he's, he's not casting blame here. But he is acknowledging we, we are here in this situation because of your wrath, because your judgment. It, it's not, they are not there because the Babylonians just finally were able to overcome the power of the Hebrews and that was it and there was nothing we can do about it and it stinks to be on the losing side. The only reason the Babylonians were allowed to overcome Jerusalem is because the Lord allowed it. The Lord ordained it. The Lord summoned it. Prophet after prophet after prophet came and they would not be heeded and the warnings were there and then eventually the wrath fell. And Israel was sent out into exile. And the psalmist recognizes this. Lord, you're sovereign. Lord, we're here. I'm in this mess because of your indignation. I understand that. I understand that we're in this mess because we have sinned against you. This is why the confession of our sins on a weekly basis and on a daily basis in our own personal lives is so important. God forbid we become inoculated to the idea of confession and to the, the offense of our own sin so that it just doesn't bother us anymore. How scary is that? We just don't feel our sins anymore. And a good way of knowing if you're feeling your sins is ask, am I confessing them? Please don't get caught up in the, the evangelical uh, uh, naivete of just saying, well, I, just, I know I'm already forgiven in, in Jesus. That is true. But the way you will know that is true is that your sins bother you so much that you're constantly running back to Jesus. And if it's like, well, I just know they're all paid for, it's all done. It, that, will, that, will, that should make you, uh, that should uh, bring out to you a concern that you don't have a sensitivity to the offensive nature of sin. Forgiven or not, your sins are obnoxious to God. And we ought then, therefore, knowing that we, yes, fine, I'm forgiven, but my, as I can, why then would I sin? The fact that I'm forgiven and still sin should bother me even more. And I should come and confess it. The, the, the hearts and the ears of Israel were stopped up to their sin. They could not hear the prophets. They hated the prophets. They hated anyone who would tell them about their sin. Better to shut them up and continue to feel like we're okay. And the psalmist recognizes that. We didn't listen. We're in this mess. And I acknowledge it. And I recognize it. Lord, it is from you. Okay, so he's in a dark valley. And then that brings us to verse 12, which I titled the sermon. But you, O Lord, this beautiful turn in the background music of the psalm, if we had Ben playing for us some background music, certainly here the background music would change. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever. Immediately, our psalm goes from utter despair to confidence and hope. And his confidence and hope is not that, hey, we're going to get through this. We're going to make it through this. It was, you endure. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever. And the remembrance of your name to all generations. You will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time uh, for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time 
has come. Sometimes suspected Jeremiah wrote this song. One, because you see the lament, right? And Jeremiah is the prophet of tears, the prophet of lament. But also it's Jeremiah who tells us that this suffering, this affliction for Israel is going to be 70 years. There's going to be this disciplinary judgment of God that's going to come upon her, but it will not last forever. And it's meant to draw Israel to repentance and then return her to her land. And here you see the psalmist with confidence in God. But you, O Lord, you're going to set things right. You endure forever. For your servants take pleasure in uh, her stones, meaning the temple, and show favor to her dust. So the nations shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord shall build up Zion and he shall appear in his glory and he shall regard the prayer of the destitute and he shall not despise their prayer. So on the one hand, this psalm takes us to the valley and teaches us to lament. And what it teaches you primarily to lament is the state of affairs for the people of God, though also our own affairs. But this psalm also draws our attention to where we must and may find our confidence. And our confidence is not in we'll work our way through this. Our confidence is in one place and one place alone. And it's verse 12. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever. Everything else he says in this later in the psalm, right, will wear away like a garment. America will wear away like a garment. I love this country, but it will fade away like a garment. And if I put my hope in it, we're doomed. It will fade away like a garment. Only one thing will endure. It's him. So we want to tether ourselves to him. Now, in the meantime, I want to love my country. In the meantime, I want to pursue excellence in our economy. I want all these good things. I want to, you know, in the medical field and foreign policy, all these wonderful things. I want, to, I want to engage them. I just will not tether myself to them. For at the end of the day, even this wonderful country is Babylon. All the nations of the earth, this cursed age in which we live is Babylon. And we must not, we must not tether ourselves to it. Though even in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 29, he says, but hey, build homes, plant gardens, I pray for your city, marry and give your children away. So yes, we don't, we don't become, well, this ain't my home, I'm just a passing through, and so I don't care about the things of this world. That's not what the Bible's called us to do. He's called us to love our neighbor. And if I'm to love my neighbor, then I have to care about the economy. And if I love my neighbor, I have to care about COVID. And if I love my neighbor, I need to care about the next election, right? All this stuff matters because I'm called to be faithful in Babylon, but it's Babylon. And our hearts yearn for Jerusalem. Our hearts yearn for the building, the full building of this glorious temple. And the psalmist knew it was coming. He's grieving and he's hurting, but he knew that the Lord endures forever and his promises endure forever and he will rebuild Zion. He knew that. He just didn't get to see it. Oh yes, the building eventually got rebuilt but the Lord did not inhabit it. The Lord did not inhabit it. Even in their rebuilding of the temple, the Lord was not pleased. And he extended the exile. You will remember, you know what? It will not be 70. It will be 70 times seven because of your hard-heartedness, he told them. Now they rebuilt the building and it was a glorious building indeed. So glorious that one time when Jesus was walking with his disciples, they were blown away by it. And they actually said, oh my gosh, look at that awesome temple. 
and you'll remember what Jesus said. You see that temple? He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. And the disciples were really flummoxed by this because they thought, well, that really, Jesus, I, you're a carpenter. You should know this. That took a long time to build. Like the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, who when Jesus, you know, she asked whether Jesus was greater than our father, you know, uh, Jacob, who built this well. You know, do you know who built this well? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? Do you know how long it took to build that temple? But of course, we know the temple of which he spoke. Jesus knew that that temple was not the temple that even this psalmist was yearning for. That the temple, the dust and the ashes, that the ruins that this psalmist is crying about, though he may have seen it fulfilled in a building, that he was longing for something much greater, a greater temple. The temple that ultimately Jesus was speaking of. When Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And the scriptures tell us, and the temple of which he spoke was his own body. This psalm is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that Jesus is really the subject and the object of this psalm. Jesus is the only one who can, who can take these words up and mean them to the fullest extent of the psalm that's given to us. Jesus is the one who took on the full lament of the people of God. He's the only one who truly yearned above everything else, yearned for the kingdom of God. And so he's the true prayer of this psalm. But he's not just the prayer of this psalm. He's the fulfillment of this psalm. He is, he is the thing we're all yearning for. It's interesting in this psalm that we're told that the time is going to come where this will be in verse uh, 18. He says, this will be written for the generations to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. The psalmist is saying, I, I'm writing this so that generations down the road are going to see the pattern here. They're going to see the lament and be able to identify with it. The people of God cry. The people of God hurt really bad. The people of God, it's not like, well, when I'm suffering, I must not be a real child of God. Look at the psalmist. He can't even eat. He's forgetting to eat. He's groaning so loudly. So if you find yourself in that place, don't think God has forsaken me because here's the psalmist. He's saying, I'm writing this so that generations down the road will understand. We read these stories and they're so important to get into our souls so that when we find ourselves in a situation of disaster, we can lean on these stories. These stories become our food and our drink. The psalmist says, this is written for future generations. They're going to see my despair and they're going to know they're not forsaken. But also, they are going to see, Lord, what you do with it so that they are going to be filled with utter and supreme confidence as well. Job didn't know in the beginning of his story how that story would end. Hannah, in her weeping, didn't know how that story was going to end. The disciples did not know how the story of Jesus, which seemed to have so much promise, then ended in utter calamity and then ended in supreme joy. They didn't know how it was going to end in the beginning, but we have the stories. These are written for us so that in the midst of our trouble, we can have the supreme confidence that the psalmist has. For you have seen the suffering of God's people and his restoration. You have seen crucifixion lead to resurrection, lead to ascension. You know that story. So in our grief and in our sorrow, 
be it personal or be it for the kingdom of God, you know how the story ends. This psalm was written for you so that you can sing it, so that you can pray it, so that it can be worked down into your soul and into your bones so that as we deal with personal or corporate grief, we can nonetheless say with the psalmist, but you, O Lord, but you endure forever. For you have seen the temple be destroyed and three days later be rebuilt. You saw the dust and ashes you love scattered abroad. You saw the temple buried in a stone. And you saw it rebuilt. And therefore, even when we look around at the struggling church, the temple being built as living stones, we can grieve over its weaknesses. We can grieve over its failings. We can grieve over its compromises. But you know how the story ends. Again, in the end of Revelation, as we considered last week, the bride comes down out of heaven as a glorious city temple. You'll remember the dimensions of the temple are cubic. I like the Holy of Holies. It's, it's a cubic city. It doesn't even make sense. That's why it's a vision. It's, it, it's, but it's, 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 it's as high as it is deep as it is wide. It's like the Holy of Holies. The whole city is the temple. That's why it says there will be no temple there. Because the whole city has become the temple. The people of God, Zion, has been rebuilt. And God, it says, dwells with her. And he is their people. You know how the story ends. So what should you do in the meantime? And the answer is pray. Because he says in verses 16 and 17, For the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. He shall regard the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer. Do you pray for that? It's important that you pray for each other's health. It's important that you pray for each other's jobs. It's important that you pray for each other's friends. That is very important. I don't minimize it. And pray for your country. But do you pray for the building of Zion? Do you pray for the building of the church? Do you pray for the coming of the kingdom in all of its fullness and all of its glory? Do you pray for that? Because he says he will not disregard the prayer of the destitute. But we must pray. In James 4, he says, you do not receive because you do not ask. And so much of the stuff you ask for, you don't receive because you ask that you might spend it on your pleasures, you adulterers and adulteresses. He's ripping his own people there just to say, you're asking for stuff that kind of just in order to build up your own idols. That's not what prayer is for. But ask, but ask for the things that the Psalms teach us to ask for. And the Psalms teach us to ask for the coming of the kingdom. The, the Psalms teach us to pray for the rebuilding of that temple. Rebuilt in Christ who has become the chief cornerstone. Brothers and sisters, you are living stones. Being built, even as aliens and strangers, being built into a holy house that you might declare the praises 
of him who called you out of darkness into light. That's what he is doing here. Even at Little Affirmation, as one little section of the building of this amazing cathedral that he is building, this temple that he is building through the ages and throughout the world. Pray. Pray for it. Lament and pray. And let your confidence supremely be in the work of God, for he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, indeed, we confess that we spend little time praying for the coming of the kingdom. We pray very little for the growth and the purity of your church. Father, we're so distracted by the personal problems that we have, which are important, and we thank you that you hear our prayers on them. We are distracted by our cultural problems, which are important, and we thank you that you hear our prayers on them. But Father, give us a passion for the church. Give us a passion for your kingdom. Make the yearning of our hearts to be the, a longing for the day when the knowledge and praise of Jehovah fills the world like the waters cover the sea. Make that our heart's desire and orient our prayers toward it, orient our actions toward it, for you will not disregard the prayers of the destitute. Father, remind us that we live in exile. And give us a yearning for Jerusalem, for our heavenly home, for that new Jerusalem that will descend from the heavens, glorious and radiant without spot or wrinkle, where you will dwell with us. You will be our God and we will be your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.